from Spam 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 Humbug. I'm Kenneth Cooley, better known as WTF Dragon, and this is a complete reading of Andrea Cantato's Through the Moongate. Chapter 17, Return Home. I showed up just in time to pick sides in the war between two giants, John Miles. The weather was a little nicer in Austin. The American girls seemed to like the English accent, which wasn't bad, and there was definitely a lot. Everything seemed like it was cheaper, and there was more of it, especially back then. So I came over and was like, ah, you know, this is pretty cool. I met and hooked up with Origin when it was just starting in Austin, and the rest, I guess, is history. I just basically never went back. Chris Roberts, The Forgotten Interview with Chris Roberts, by Paul Dean. John Miles, a young geek with an inordinate passion for hardware, was an admirer of the Ultima series and of Zork. When he started programming on his Apple II, he began working on a product that was supposed to be the synthesis of his two favorite video games, combining a role-playing game with a parser as powerful as the one that had made Infocom famous. By the end of summer of 1985, his game was in an advanced state of development. Ultima IV had been released, and Miles, along with his dorm mates, had lost many hours of sleep and skipped many university classes to finish Garriott's game. Still, despite the break, his own game prototype had reached a playable stage, and John considered leaving university to look for a job to further pursue the experiment. Once I had a demo working, I started cold calling all of the companies whose games I was into looking for a publisher. Infocom was high on that list, but Origin Systems came first. Plucking up his courage, Miles called Origin, and the receptionist passed him on to Chuck Boucher, who in turn transferred the call to Dave Albert. Unbeknownst to Miles, the timing of his call was perfect. Richard had just given up on the idea of programming the next Ultima alone, and had instructed his staff to look for Apple II experts to support him. Albert wasn't very enthusiastic about Miles' project, calling it a bit too derivative for publication. But the candidate's talent was obvious, and there could be room for him at Origin. According to Miles himself, Dave explained that while they weren't currently in the market for a Zork parser, they had finally convinced Richard to start hiring additional programmers for Ultima 5, and would be interested in checking out my demo. Not wanting to waste time, Miles headed straight to New Hampshire, but this time his timing couldn't have been more unfortunate, as tensions between Richard and his brother Robert had reached a breaking point. OSI had overcome obstacles and faced perils like the market crisis in its founding year, and it still managed to do better than just survive. It had had several successes, and it was able to recruit excellent staff, becoming a powerhouse in the CRPG sector, and, to a lesser extent, getting a foothold in other genres. But success slowly took its toll on the two brothers due to the high stress and continuous risks that the company had to take. The strong bond between Richard and Robert had suffered from these inevitable tensions, Robert, being the older brother, who had a strong university background, had taken aim at setting up Origin Systems as an efficient and productive organization, while Richard had taken care of the creative aspects and planning. Soon, however, Richard's way of working had created organizational problems for Robert. The younger brother had adapted a habit of showing up for work in the middle of the day or after lunch, and then staying in the office late. This was soon imitated by other staff members, creating some embarrassment for Robert, who, on the contrary, had been trying to implement well-defined worked hours that were the same for everyone. When the two clashed, Richard had to capitulate and adapt, understanding that his conduct had to be an example to the others at the studio. 
Nonetheless, the subject came up again and again, especially when Richard, in search of inspiration or an attempt to experiment with something new, put aside programming for a few hours, or an entire afternoon, and opted instead to have casual, non-work-related conversations with his colleagues. As Robert saw it, Richard's main job had to be programming and focusing on the company, which could not afford any delays in the release of the next Ultima. Every hour lost could spell the difference between Origin's survival or its exit from the market. Richard, on the contrary, felt the need to stimulate his creativity and experiment with new ideas, believing that the design process of a game was different from other work activities, and thus less beholden to rules and schedules. Richard had also never really felt comfortable about the move to New England, and therefore had never managed to settle down there. His neighbors did not accept him, and when misunderstandings occurred, his brother often took the side of the neighbors over Richard's. The cold climate also played a depressing role on the morale of most of the programmers at the studio, who were used to the heat of Texas. These unresolved, accumulating tensions were in danger of exploding due to minor or even irrelevant issues, such as quarreling about the ownership of a pencil, which almost led to Richard and Robert having a physical confrontation. The two brothers ended up resorting to their parents, Owen and Helen, as mediators. Other conflicts, meanwhile, went beyond the brothers in charge of Origin Systems. The move to New England had been planned as a temporary measure, while Robert's wife, Mary, had waited to receive the promotion that would allow her to move with her company. The deadline for that had passed, and several members of the original studio, including Richard, began to express a certain impatience about a return to Texas. Robert had no intention of accepting another separation that a few years earlier had almost ruined his marriage. Knowing that OSI had expanded hiring local staff into administrative and operational roles, Robert proposed to submit the question of a transfer to the entire staff. The original core of OSI, mainly the Texan programmers, had by now become a minority and a vote would clearly favor the newcomers recruited from New England. But Richard had had enough of that part of the country. Since the move, his life had changed radically, and the experience pushed him into what he would later call the black period in his life, both from a moral point of view and because he had begun to dress in black, reflecting his own mood through the leather jackets and clothing that he frequently wore. The fracture between the two brothers had become unbearable, but the worst was yet to come and was totally unexpected. Chuck Boucher was very worried about the postponed return to Texas, and Robert's proposal to let the staff vote on it, dominated as the studio was by local New Hampshire hires, fed his unhappiness even more prompting him to doubt his professional prospects and future at Origin. In his early youth, Chuck had spent many hours playing D&D with Richard, and later they had become roommates when he was attending Austin University in 1981. Chuck would soon leave school to follow his friend's brilliant career with the foundation of OSI. Boucher's career as a game developer had started with clones of successful titles. The arcade shooter Caverns of Callisto had been his first genuine game, but it was a limited success. And due to the relatively low market penetration of origin titles other than Ultima, it went mostly unnoticed. Subsequent projects taken from Steve Jackson's works bore decent results, but were still aimed at a niche audience that could not give them the explosive success and popularity of Ultima. Having collaborated with Garriott on several Ultimas, Chuck set to work on his own sci-fi RPG called 2400 AD. Released in 1987, Boucher's role-playing game was panned by critics. Computer Gaming World criticized the game's graphics, pointing to design and development flaws, including a lack of intensity, puzzles, and challenges. Work on the sequel, 2500 AD, was started, including a planned Commodore 64 port. For this, Origin had commissioned a promising new programmer, John Romero. A few months earlier, at a fair, Romero had appeared at Origin's stand and loaded one of his games on an Apple II, which was, at the time, running a demo copy of Ultima. 
His game was using high-resolution mode, the most complex and therefore least used graphical mode on the platform. This impressed the stand manager, who, after repeated solicitations from Romero, put him in touch with Origin's HR department. Fresh off of their experience with Mobius, Origin continued to carry out conversions internally. With an initial salary of $22,000 a year, more than he had previously made working in fast food or for a temporary employment agency, Romero was assigned to the new division created to make ports. But when I started working on the port, I immediately ran into the wall. I said, I need to move this code over to the Commodore. Where's the cable, guys? They went, what? There's no cable. We don't port stuff here. You're the first guy to port stuff. Romero's stay at Origin would only last eight months. When sales of 2400 AD on the Apple II and PC began to look disappointing, development on the sequel came to a sudden halt. Romero's work was blocked as well, and he left OSI shortly thereafter to create Inside Out Software, and later ID Software, the company that would later launch the first-person shooter Boom with Wolfenstein and Doom in the 1990s. But an even more grave and unexpected consequence of the halt of the project, above and beyond losing a talented programmer like Romero, was that Boucher had had enough. He decided to return to Texas and continue with his studies. Boucher's departure was a painful experience for Richard, and added to his urge to grow back to Texas with or without his brother's consent. Robert soon realized that blocking the move could cause the company's dissolution. And it was in this unfortunate moment that a young John Miles arrived at OSI. Richard was not willing to spend another winter in what he considered a frozen wasteland where people were rude and talked funny and couldn't cook up a decent fajita to save their lives. Miles' first assignment was to help with updating Ultima. Origin had just bought back the rights from Sierra Online to republish Richard's second game. The CRPG audience had meanwhile grown at an incredible rate and Ultima had become an extremely popular series. A re-release would tap into a potential new revenue stream and possibly bring new fans. The Garriott brothers decided to increase their return on investment by assigning a team led by Dave Albert with John Ficini as chief programmer and a team of four programmers under him, including Richard, Stephen Muse, Dallas Snell, and Dr. Cat, to update and improve the game for re-release. Being assigned to work on an IBM PC, Dr. Cat decided to adapt his clothing to a satirical spin on the formal business attire of IBM employees. According to Dave Albert, my favorite Dr. Cat moment was when he was given an IBM PC conversion to work on. He showed up the next day in a three-piece suit, saying that if he was going to work on an IBM PC, he had to dress properly. Fortunately, he did not hold onto this regimen for more than a day. In the mid-1980s, organization and planning was not one of Origin's strengths. So the newcomer, John Miles, wasn't given many instructions on how to work. Young and inexperienced, he wanted to show his skills and put a lot of effort and creativity into his work. At the time he had been hastily hired, the improved version of Ultima 1 was almost ready, and Miles was left with a little to work on apart from the title screen and one or two other cleanup tasks that he later admitted he couldn't really recall. However, Dr. Cat was particularly impressed with his demonstrable skills. John Miles was hired while the project was already underway, and he moved from his home in Antlers, Oklahoma. He loaded some clothes and his Apple computer into his car and started driving from Oklahoma to New Hampshire. Every night he would stop and check into a hotel room, set up his Apple there, and work on an animated title screen for the game. He hadn't been given any detailed instructions on how it should look. He thought up his own ideas for it. When he arrived in New Hampshire, he brought a floppy disk into the office, told us he had made it entirely while on the road. Miles uploaded his program and showed everyone what he had planned. According to Shay Adams... 
His boot-up sequence for the Apple rewrite of Ultima 1 consisted of a series of animated scenes that looped endlessly until the player started the game. Miles sketched a medieval landscape where a castle arose from the forest beside a pastoral lake. A bird would fly past and perch in a tree, and the word Ultima would descend while a hand gripping a sword rose slowly from the lake. With clear Arthurian references, Miles' intro seemed very classical. Imagining that the game would be left running in computer stores and booths, playing the animation in an endless loop, Miles hid a couple of little secrets. Every four cycles was followed by a small variation. A knight in armor entered the screen from the left, passed behind the castle, and headed towards the lake. Shea Adams again. It was just a little joke that made him laugh when he pictured someone watching it in a store, noticing the knight and telling a friend to watch for it, and then wondering what happened when it failed to appear. The knight wasn't the only surprise in the introduction. After three appearances on horseback, the knight was replaced by a Lamborghini that entered the castle quickly, the door closing behind the car. Not satisfied with this, Miles had also decided to give the user the opportunity to trigger the animations after discovering the right combinations of keys. Even simultaneously, which resulted in a race between the horse rider and the sports car. The introduction, according to Dr. Cat, was very enjoyable. His animated title sequence was used pretty much as is for the game. In short order... The game, with the new graphics, was republished under the name Ultima One, The First Age of Darkness, and the team was dissolved. Richard then returned to Texas, where he created a small, detached section of Origin Systems and set to work on Ultima Five, along with Snell and Muse. Miles was given the opportunity to decide what to do. Robert offered me the choice of staying in New Hampshire and working on ports to Atari, Commodore, Mac, and IBM Tandy, or following his brother down to Austin to lend a hand on Ultima Five. The choice was not easy at all, and Miles, feeling the pressure, went for the most diplomatic solution possible. Being the new guy wanting to score loyalty points with upper management and apparently suffering from an undiagnosed brain condition, I actually agreed to stay. It was, however, only a momentary lapse. That very night, I spun out my Camaro in a snowstorm and wrecked it on the way home from the office. It wasn't even Thanksgiving yet. What kind of place was this, anyway? This was a huge mistake. I didn't belong here. So I gave Robert my regrets and cast my lot in with the Rebels. He was understanding enough. Richard and Robert's breakup had immediate negative consequences. The Rebel faction he was about to take with him to Texas was an affront to the long and patient recruitment work of Dave Albert in his role as VP of Development and Marketing. The separation of Origin's staff into two parts threatened to harm his work. Richard hated living in New England and strongly wanted to return to Texas. The initial discussions had him moving back there and building a small development office there. And in short order, the situation changed radically. What was supposed to be just Richard's move took the form of a real schism that left Albert disappointed. That evolved into him actively recruiting staff from the existing group in New England. I was prohibited from trying to dissuade them from leaving and was quite frustrated at seeing a couple of years of team building being destroyed because Richard didn't like New England. Already partially disillusioned by the management of the small family company, where decisions were made for personal rather than business reasons, as he saw it, Albert realized it was time to look elsewhere. Having already received offers from Electronic Arts and Broderbund for some time, Albert discussed his professional future with Doug Carlston and Trip Hawkins, after which he decided in favor of EA. Still, the experience with OSI was important for Dave Albert's career. It was a wonderful experience, full of learning and growth. When he joined EA, Albert became the producer of Joey Barra's RPG development team. Within this role, he collaborated not only on important CRPGs like Wasteland, published in 1988, 
a sci-fi title set in a post-apocalyptic future and developed by the Interplay team led by Brian Fargo, its sequel, Fountain of Dreams, published in 1990, and the third chapter of The Bard's Tale series, published in 1998. He also worked on Centurion, Defender of Rome, published in 1990, a hybrid of strategy, tactics, adventure, and action, a spiritual successor to 1986's Defender of the Crown, and influential in the creation and success of games such as the Total War series, published later by Creative Assembly. When Miles joined the team in Texas, work had already begun on the next Ultima game. Snell had worked on the initial titles, and Muse was working on the procedure that scheduled NPCs' daily tasks. The space initially available in the new Austin office was very modest, enough for about 15 workstations in several offices along a corridor. Most of Origin's staff remained in New England, and only a handful of programmers had followed Richard to Texas, including Miles and Snell. Richard, thus, started looking for new employees. Among the first new hires there were Mark Hamner and Toshi Morita. Miles recalls, They focused on the first-person dungeon elements of the game and various other tasks, such as maintaining and updating Steve's Pathfinder. For the first time in the development history of the series, most of the programming escaped from Richard Garriott's control and ended up with Miles. I did the combat magic inventory systems and took over the core subroutine library and most of the business logic behind the game flow. Miles even managed to recover a small part of the code of the game that he had programmed in his university dormitory. None of the tech that went into my prototype game was used at Origin, except for the Huffman compression code used to store the text, which did make it into Ultima 5. It came in handy when we ran out of room for conversation text. Across the gaming industry, development studios were growing beyond one or two programmers taking care of everything. And Origin was also maturing. Yet, something of the old way of doing things still remained. Like many of his colleagues before him, Miles, in addition to programming, also took care of documentation and even helped with the clue books that would have been sold together with Ultima 5 to help less determined users to finish the game. And would have also allowed Origin to earn a few dollars more. According to Miles... I also wrote a fair bit of collateral material for Ultima 5, from the scroll that recounts the party's descent into the underworld and loss of Lord British to the famously unhelpful hint, hint book. One of the funniest moments in the development of Ultima 5 happened shortly after a lunch break. According to Dr. Cat, One day the team is out at lunch and came back and saw all the graphics on the game screen were upside down. John Miles called the whole team into his office and said, Hey everybody, look, I ran into a weird bug. Instead of just crashing the game, it made this funny visual effect happen. Ken tried to keep a straight face and not laugh as long as he, as long as he could while everybody looked at it and talked about it. Finally, he confessed. He had hidden some code in the music driver that would watch and see if you ever went half an hour without touching any key on the keyboard. If you did, it would flip everything upside down. The team was so amused they kept the code in the game as an Easter egg, where if you yell flip-flop, it turns the screen upside down. Ken Arnold had a slightly different perspective on the event. It was done specifically to fool Richard, and it worked. John Miles, the other victim, figured it out quickly. The move to Austin might have separated them, but it didn't help with the incompatibility between Richard Garriott's creative visions and Robert Garriott's pragmatic motivations. One of their more lively clashes in that time period occurred when Robert asked Richard to remove a room where the party came across some monsters that looked like normal children on the recommendation of an Ultima 5 testing officer. Chained and locked in cells, the children could be released using a lever or left to their own fate. In case the player, moved by compassion, decided to free the children, it turned out that they were shapeshifters and would immediately attack, giving the player the option to fight or escape. 
The tester found the scenario intolerable from a moral point of view, talked to Robert, who, fearing that the game would feed the anger of associations like the one that had branded Exodus as satanic, agreed to remove it. Richard explained the situation and was satisfied with the tester's reaction. It confirmed that the event had proven effective, designed to put the player in front of a moral choice. When Richard stonewalled, the conflict escalated to the parents, who in unison supported their elder son. Despite everything, Richard remained stubborn, and the prison with the shape-shifting children stayed intact, without the much-feared negative consequences. While Richard and his staff were working on Ultima V, Dennis LeBay was informed of OSI's transfer from New England to Texas. The artist still worked for Steve Jackson Games, and until then had only done contract work for most of the Ultima titles. But he was contacted by Garriott directly. I was afraid to go full on into comic books because it's a lot of work for not much pay, and I was not fast. But as I was contemplating that, I got a call and Richard said, I moved the Origin offices to Austin. You want to come work for me? And I thought about that for about a quarter of a second and then said, yes, absolutely. Lubay joined the team when Ultima 5 was already at an advanced stage of development and drew some of the tiles with which the engine drew the game world. The engine was modified by Miles and still derived from the routines written by Kenneth Arnold for the original Ultima. Lubay's hiring gave OSI not only a very skilled graphic designer, but also proved to be a double stroke of luck. The artist was working with a young programmer named Chris Roberts. Born in May 27, 1968 in Redwood City, California, Roberts had spent several years of his youth in England, in Manchester specifically. In the mid-1980s, little more than a teenager, he began programming video games in BASIC on Acorn Computer's BBC Micro, a much-beloved platform in the UK, but fairly unknown elsewhere. Based on the ubiquitous MOS 6502 chipset, the BBC Micro was especially interesting because of the version of BASIC loaded into its ROM, one of the most powerful and versatile ever. Compared to Microsoft's BASIC, the most popular BASIC dialect, the BBC Micro's version had made the evolution from spaghetti code to a structured and procedural language. It was also equipped with high-resolution graphics for audio channels, pointers, and support for variable names with more than two characters. Besides being an excellent teaching tool, it was a good platform for video games, as proven by David Braben with the first installment of his legendary Elite. Robert's first game was Wizador, an extremely difficult platform game in which the player had to retrieve three pieces of a sword and defeat a dragon. For release, Robert's first choice was a small but promising British publisher called Ultimate Play the Game, UPG, founded a few years prior by Tim and Chris Stamper. UPG, later renamed Rare, who would go on to churn out blockbusters like Donkey Kong Country, was focused on the much more promising market for Commodore 64 and ZX Spectrum, and declined to publish Robert's BBC Micro game. The computer's higher price meant that it had a smaller share of the gaming market. However, Imagine Software, then recently founded by Mark Butler and David Lawson, was looking for some games to publish, until their in-house developed games were ready. The contract between Roberts and Imagine was successfully established by Martin Galway, who at the time was already working at Ocean Software in Manchester. Thanks to this, Roberts had his first game published at the tender age of 16. Wizardor became a great success for the BBC Micro and launched his early career. Just a year later in 1986, Roberts released his second work, Strikers Run, another horizontal scrolling platform game. He was helped by Galway, who composed the music and created the sound effects. Galway, in fact, had established himself as one of the most creative and skilled audio specialists, and was well known for his memorable Rambo 2 soundtrack on the Commodore 64. Meanwhile, Robert's father had accepted a job offer at the University of Texas, and despite his son's initial resistance, had arranged for his family to move back to the United States. However, collaboration with Galway was far from over. 
Arriving in Austin, Roberts learned about the North American market. The British BBC Micro and Spectrum ZX were virtually unknown in Texas, and Roberts replaced his favorite platform with the more popular Commodore 64. To make the big leap, he needed help, and seeing a poster hanging in a board game store, asked about the artist, who happened to be Dennis LeBay. Thanks to that happenstance inquiry, the two creatives were able to meet. Understanding the potential of Roberts' project, LeBay decided to collaborate with him, but a few months later moved to Texas after having been hired by OSI. What could have been the end of Roberts' project, which would later be known under the name Times of Lore, actually became serendipity when LeBay mentioned it to Garriott. Garriott and Roberts met, with the latter being very impressed by Roberts' ability to conceive and explain his projects down to the last detail, and suggested that Roberts join Origin's Texas branch. The 20-year-old accepted and immediately joined the Ultima 5 team. While helping out with it, Roberts continued to devote time to Times of Lore, while also being encouraged by Snell, Garriott, and Lubay, who sensed his potential. None of the three foresaw how instrumental the young programmer would be in the continuation of the Ultima series and the fate of Origin Systems. To learn more, subscribe to Spam 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 Humbug on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Anchor.fm at anchor.fm slash sssshpodcast or at spamspamspamhumbug.com. To find out more about Through the Moongate, visit thera.it. That's T-H-E-I-R-A dot I-T. You can also find the book on Amazon. And of course, you can learn more about the book and its author at andreacantado.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-A-C-O-N-T-A-T-O dot com. A big thank you to author Andrea Cantato for not only undertaking the effort of writing through the Moongate, but also for agreeing to allow for it to be read to you in this and following Spam 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 Humbug episodes. Tune in in a couple weeks' time for the next chapter. I'm going to make some games and I'll show them to you when I'm done.